This is the Ruby on Rails podcast. Jeffrey Grossenbach here at RailsConf 2006 with Marcel Molina and Sam Stevenson. Very exciting to have so many people here, 550 or so. Tons of great lectures and not to mention just sharing a beer afterwards and talking with all these kinds of people of what they're doing with Rails and, and how that's all working. So welcome, guys. Thanks. Thanks. So kind of starting back at the beginning, a lot of people even outside of the Rails community know you for your blog, projectionist, Tumblog, and even people who aren't necessarily interested in Ruby, like the design of it, the style, and other people have started Tumblogs as well, even though you weren't the first ones. How did you get the idea? Why did you think a Tumblog would be the way that you wanted to express your ideas on the web? Well, originally it was Sam's idea, but uh, and he just mentioned it to me, and I thought it would be fun to do. But one of the reasons I really like it is that um, oftentimes there's just a picture or a quote or something that that I find informative or something and want to share with people. And the kind of um, regular blog way of doing that is you write a bit of intro or something and then a bit of outro, and, and there's the content. And usually it's not very useful. It's the same way that old comics have... Um, a guy walking on the street and then there's a little bubble that's like a man walks down the street and <laughs> it doesn't really serve anything so it's nice to be able to a certain extent efface the author of the blog and just focus on the content and not have to worry about introducing it or giving some kind of context and it ends up that being able to put just a small caption or something ends up being totally sufficient content uh, context rather and um, so it, for me it's it's a pretty uh, quick way of just throwing something up there and sharing it without having to focus on how I want to sell it or something. Yeah, it's definitely about removing a barrier to entry. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't post. The interesting about it, too, is that um, at this point, there's like five people who contribute to it. Yeah. And on the back end, we're not even storing who... Uh, you have to log in. It's protected. You can't just post if you guess URLs. But we're not storing who is the author of a given post. So when I'm reading the RSS, I don't even know whether it's Sam or Patrick or Henry or Chad, unless there's an image and it happens to be hosted on one of their servers, or there's some context that clearly makes it apparent that one of them. So it's cool in a certain way to not even know who's putting up the content. I was going to mention that because it does seem very anonymous. It's just kind of a stream of consciousness from all these different people, and yet it does seem to be coherent, too. There's uh, When I see something, it seems like it fits with the whole flow of what, what else has been there previously. Yeah, sometimes we'll just have these fortuitous juxtapositions, whether it be like two quotes or an image in a quote. We don't try that hard to do it, but it's fun when that kind of stuff happens. It's a fun median to just have a simple way of sharing stuff with a bunch of people, and unfortunately, even though we have Ruby snippets sometimes, it's pretty much entirely non- non-Ruby or Rails related, even though both of us are in the Rails community. Well, I know Jason Kotke linked to you, and I'm sure a lot of people read it just for the photos, the quotes, other kinds of interesting things on there. Yeah, it's cool to we monitor casually the feed burner stuff, and it's cool to see that it just keeps on growing. People find out about it somehow. Not Ruby programmers. I wouldn't imagine why Ruby programmers would hang out and keep on looking at it. <laughs> and you haven't even changed it that much as a uh, apart from maybe just changing the header, you have nice little Web 2.0 reflection, the themes and 
for each post seem to be pretty consistent. Yeah, that's all Sam. We have some interesting constraints to um, every post is 390 pixels wide, <laughs> which is interesting when we're posting Ruby code because uh, that's like 52 characters yeah. I think that we can fit in. So we, we have to make it look nice when we post it. Yeah, sometimes we have to use like single letter variables, which yeah. I sort of cringe at. <laughs> <laughs> or split things into multiple lines. Yeah. Well, it's all about constraints and... Uh, yeah, we're embracing the hell out of it. Less characters. <laughs> One thing I've thought about is with many people reading blogs via RSS, you guys have great styling on there, and yet most of the time I read... Uh, read projectionist through my RSS reader and you lose all that styling. I wonder if people are going to have to change the way that they style posts or feeds so that some of that comes through to people who are reading it through an RSS reader or maybe that's irrelevant and the whole idea of RSS is you just get the pure content without any styling. Yeah, I have actually, that has occurred to me because I think in certain contexts it is relevant, especially when there's sort of a juxtaposition and that's not so much the absence of style it's the absence of having the stream be in the reader even though you have the multiple posts you're not seeing them at the same time and by default uh, like if you click on a permalink you see an entire day's worth and so sometimes the entire day will be more or less cohesive but yeah it did occur to me it has occurred to me that like oh some of these people are missing what it actually looks like and I think sometimes they'll have there'll be a picture with some green or some blue and it's like wow that looks really nice against the logo or what have you there are a few readers like Thunderbird, I think, which is kind of on the outskirts of feed readers, basically just embeds the browser view. And I kind of like that, especially when looking at the, the timeline for the Ruby on Rails change sets, because the way that the RSS feed displays that information, it doesn't show the highlight, highlighted diffs, so you kind of lose context. You always have to click on it and stuff. I don't use it anymore, but I used to, and, and that kind of gives you sort of the best of both worlds. Well, a couple months ago, I was... Wrote to you originally while you were still running Ionist, and since then you've joined 37 Signals. Yeah. You had a successful, prestigious consulting uh, firm, as is. Why did you decide to join 37 Signals? Yeah, I actually wanted to apologize because you had <laughs> approached us to do the podcast, and we're like, yeah, can we do it like a week from now? Because we had started talking to Jason and. Um, and uh, David about the 37 Signals thing and then a week came and, and it wasn't publicly announced we're like oh how about another week and we couldn't really you know it was a tricky little spot it would have been funny if we would have had this podcast and talk about Ionist the whole time whatever and then a week later it's like Ionist is no longer yeah. in existence but um, uh, to answer I'll answer the question and, and Sam can elaborate on it but Ionist was fun it was it was great to work with Sam I was really happy to to start the business with him and we did well and we had great clients um, but you know, given the opportunity to work on Rails applications with David with Jameis um, and with the great designers at 37 Signals who at the time I only knew through their work I didn't even know what it was like to work with them and since working with them it's it's even become even better of a, of a deal than it seemed initially uh, I just don't see how you could turn that down it, it, money becomes irrelevant when you have the opportunity as a Rails developer to work with David and Jameis and, and the great designers it's pretty much a no brainer so it was a really exciting to, to have the offer and, um, and so far it's turned out really well and we're both really on board we've been really on board with their writings and their approach to things and Sam and I had been interacting with David 
uh, as early adopters of Rails since essentially day one. And, and at the time when he approached us, we had essentially already been working with him for a year. There's this great thing about open source when you're hiring that you can essentially test drive someone in a job interview for like a year, get to know them, know their work habits, and, and really know what you're kind of getting into, which is way people, anyone can, can, can put on a persona in an interview, at a job interview, um, and seem infallible. Uh, in the same way that when you first meet someone, you go out on a date, you're both the ideal versions of yourselves, and then <laughs> you have this big crush type period, and two weeks later, you're like, oh, okay, we're both kind of flawed in a lot of ways, and things aren't in a honeymoon phase anymore. But uh, anyway, when you have a full year or something like that to work with someone and really know how they deal with pressure, how reliable they are, how consistent they are, how friendly they are, and motivated, and things like that. So in any event, we got that. We got to really expose ourselves to the way David works for a long time, and um, we're really enjoying that experience. And so it's it's we jumped at the opportunity to make that a more frequent um, interaction. And even now, you don't necessarily go into the office every day. You still work from home. At some mm-hmm. times, do you work together, up, separate from the office, or you? Are you working solo most of the time, just communicating over campfire or whatever? Well, we started out uh, working on campfire in December of 2005, uh, and we were working in Marcel's apartment, um, and that lasted until February, I think? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Um, and now I work from home. Marcel goes into the office occasionally, I think. Yeah. We had been... But Sam and I had been doing... it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah. we go into the office occasionally if we need to meet or discuss something for a few minutes or if we're going to lunch or something like that. But yeah. We have the, we have this nice sort of mix between the ability to have an immediate conversation in Campfire, but also the ability to turn off the sound on Campfire, go to another desktop, focus on work, and pretty much be in isolation. If you want to get into some kind of flow, if you don't want to be interrupted, being in your own place and yet being able to talk to the entire group at once gives you this great opportunity to do to work in whichever mode is appropriate for the time. It's so. definitely a virtual office. Yeah. Because when I when I enter the campfire room in the morning, it's the same as going to my desk. So yeah, we there's no rigorous uh, nine to five schedule. And David's spoken about this recently. He talks about you know if you're really productive for two hours and get the work done that needs to get that needs to be done, then there's and then that's way more important than satisfying the nine to five requirement and sit there yes. and essentially look at a clock and be like, oh, okay, well, in two hours I can leave. So he talks, <laughs> he basically plays video games all day. <laughs> can you beat him or is I, he I haven't, good? I haven't gotten to that. You haven't tried? No. So speaking of Campfire a little bit, you said that at the initi- when you designed it, you didn't really think about optimization at all. Of course, you knew that it, this was going to be a pretty heavy site, a lot of people accessing it going to be a lot more in resource intensive than just reading a blog or uh, adding to a calendar, but then you did the optimization l- later. Did you wait till it was complete and then you did some stress testing and optimized, or was it, it was kind of halfway through that you said, all right, this is going to take a lot of resources and we do look at this? Yeah, we basically didn't care at all about optimizing anything and focused on making the code. That's dis- not true. We optimized for beauty i think well yeah okay sure that 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 was ultimately my point yeah but so we we didn't care about optimizing for performance at all in the beginning 
And we, it was something where up front we knew that there was going to be, there was unquestionably going to be performance um, challenges. But we focused on basically rather than focusing on making something really fast, we implemented it quickly and as elegantly as possible, even if it was potentially something that was in Ruby that would, have, that would be clearly way faster to do in SQL, for example. Um, and essentially at the end, uh, oh, actually it's funny because as we were developing it, the approach that we were taking was not fast in the slightest. And, it, and I would essentially beach ball my <laughs> laptop as I was developing when like three people were chatting. We essentially left it to, to the end. At the end, we dealt with the two unpleasantnesses, which is making it work in IE and fixing whatever performance problems there were. But we had way more information to base our performance optimization work. And at that point, David actually came up with a really bright way of fixing the performance problem, which turned out to work. It was challenging, really challenging, to actually implement that. But ultimately it didn't take that much time and uh, we had we had a really much better idea of what to do and what needed to get optimized at that point than we would have had if we tried to do it up front we actually removed that code and replaced it with a more advanced version a couple of months later when we needed to add a new feature so it just seemed like you approached it pretty conservatively initially there was going to be no free plan but then you felt like, hey, we can, the servers can handle this, yeah. and yeah, it's a benefit. It. So now we have a what four at a time, yeah. four person at a time free plan. We, we work just figure out how much we can handle. And thanks to Jameis, we can handle a whole lot. So yeah, we were unsure we about a free plan. We were unsure about whether we would be able to provide a free plan, and it turned out that <laughs> our servers were totally undertaxed. It's like the load average is like zero one. Did you have to optimize on the JavaScript end too? If you said you. Laptop Definitely. was beach balling, so there there was two parts of that. Well, that's because we were running the servers on our local machines okay, for development. But, yeah, but the JavaScript also needed to be optimized, and uh, you do that basically the same way you do Rails optimization, which is do it the nice and pretty way first, and then if you need to go and change stuff, do that afterwards. So, Sam, do you have any recommendations for benchmarking JavaScript, or is it more just subjective, looking at the code, seeing yeah, how just, it's working? Just use the application. And use it. If you find spots that take too long, the first thing you can do is try to minimize the number of innumerable loops you have if you're using that in prototype. Uh, those are very convenient, but they're also pretty slow. And it's All an unfortunate like side effect of the way. Yeah, unfortunate side effect of the way they're implemented. Every iteration happens inside of two try-catch blocks. Uh, the way you you break and continue is by throwing two objects for each of those and so that has to be implemented with try catch and that does slow things down quite a bit and also there's the overhead of um, method calls but having get a said bit that slow, for yeah, the most part it doesn't, it doesn't really matter most of the time there's, there's really normally not that much stuff on the web page so another thing that came out of Campfire Fire was the whole integration test thing and a lot of people are still getting into test driven development in general can you give a description of what is integration testing? Why did that come out of the whole campfire process? Basically, two big flaws with functional tests was, A, you can only make requests on the current uh, controller, which is kind of an arbitrary restriction. The, the way that, that tests, those tests are broken out is they're done by controller, so given that 
given that context, it makes sense, but that doesn't mean that it's a meaningful context or a useful context. A way more natural approach is when talking about higher-level functional tests to think of it in terms of use cases or stories or some kind of narrative, and those invariably, as your, as your application becomes more sophisticated, span controllers. So one of the things that integration tests essentially fix, although they are kind of a superset of uh, functional tests, not a replacement for them, is that you can make requests to an arbitrary uh, controller. And uh, you can also do far better, you have a far better mechanism for following redirects um, to an arbitrary depth. Uh, so it allows you to capture and recreate more faithfully the way your application is going to actually be used. Rather than this tiny isolated request, you can do a handful of requests that would essentially emulate the way someone uses your application. The other, another um, shortcoming of the functional test is that when you're making the request, you're just using these get, post, or XHR methods that you pass a symbol representing the name of the action. And now that there's something stuff like named routes, that's kind of a dry violation to not be able to be using your named routes when you're doing your functional testing. So when you have a combination of being able to make requests to arbitrary controllers and use the named routes, you get far less brittle tests and, and it allows you to test at an even higher level than functional tests allowed you to test. So you can really sort of do these story-based tests. And the integration tests add a lot of stuff that just wasn't there, like separate sessions. There's these integration sessions where um, you can even run your app in a console, which is amazing. But you can emulate having multiple users interacting with the site at the same time, more or less, with integration tests. And also that they have a more faithful they do a request more faithfully. It's actually processing the full stack, whereas functional tests are kind of a uh, simulation of a request. So there's still a place for functional tests in the same way that there's still a place for has and belongs to many. Some people, this is a bit of an aside, <laughs> some people uh, think that has many through has obsoleted has and belongs to many. It actually hasn't. It's just that... It's still useful. Yeah, the application of has and belongs to many has, has become smaller. If you are really just associating two things together, and it's really just a mapping between IDs, has and belongs to many is great. Um, but as soon as you have to add any behavior, add any more attributes, and really have a true join model, that's when has many through um, applies. But in any event, functional tests are still useful, but integration tests, especially for something like Campfire, which in certain cases has pretty sophisticated flows, as it were, integration tests became a real godsend. And, and I, I didn't actually implement them. Jameis implemented them. I sort of fell in love with them immediately and used them uh, religiously or whatever. And uh, but they did they did come out at about the same time as Campfire was being worked on. So sh would you say every app could benefit from integration tests, or would it just depend on the app and something that's very interactive like Campfire would benefit from it more? The way that I use it maps to the way that I find it comfortable to test my Rails applications. I like high-level, story-like tests for the most part. I like to be able to express in English what some given test is testing as closely as possible. So I can sit there and have two users doing various things, interacting in, a, in various ways, and write these tiny little DSL custom assertion things um, and very succinctly express what before would require a lot of sort of ancillary 
information that had to do with implementation details, which don't really matter when you're trying to think about what is supposed to happen. Um, so I, I, I really like using integration tests when going to implement a feature rather than having tests scattered across a bunch of different controllers. You just essentially have one integration test where you dictate what the feature implements. Sam has been working on the backpack calendar, and um, I think he was telling me the other day that integration tests are a really good fit for that, too. Yeah, that's a good transition bit. Backpack calendar little movie was released last week or two weeks ago. looks pretty impressive, almost as responsive as just a desktop calendar app application, being able to drag around a whole range of dates and add and remove easily. For me, sometimes working on a web app, it almost feels like MS-DOS apps where you, if you want a dialog box, you have to draw your own bit by bit and, and put these things all together in such an awkward way. And of course, things like Prototype and Scriptaculous and of course Rails makes it, that a lot easier. Do you see things moving a lot more in that direction to where more kinds of widgets and kinds of controls will be available through JavaScript or with something like the backpack calendar, is it going to be something where it just has to be made for that specific situation? I think I think it's inherent to the nature of a web application and the mediums that we that we work in. So most of the time, it's about striking the right balance between HTML and CSS, JavaScript, and Ruby, and those are four pretty pretty different things. And trying to encapsulate like like trying to make heavyweight widgets, I think is along the same lines as people who want high-level components uh, in Rails. It's just, there's, it's a good fit for things like uh, sliders and other controls that we're used to that, that aren't implemented in web browsers yet. But uh, for stuff like calendars, you know, you're, you're going to want to design it anyway. And uh, HTML is the language for that. And uh, I think the best thing we can do is provide guidelines for figuring out what behavior belongs where. And Prototype tries to do that by encouraging you to work with HTML more than anything. So I probably already know the answer to this, but the whole idea for the backpack calendar, did it start technically of where maybe you were doing a little research and development and said, hey, this is possible, or did it start with an idea from Jason Fried or Orion or whoever saying, hey, we we need this, and, and here's what, how we think it should work. Well, none of our ideas are uh, ever intentionally about technology. It's, uh, it, you know, everything has a use case. And for Backpack, it was something we needed, and it was also our number one feature request. So I think it had been planned for a while, but, uh, you know, it just came time to work on it, and I've been working on it for about two months now, and it should be out really soon. Especially over the last six months or last year, the tons of people coming out with calendars, and then Google comes out with their calendar, and yet the backpack calendars, what we've seen of it, seems to be quite a different perspective on that. It seems like it's going to be pretty popular. Well, I'm probably pretty biased, but I think it's the simplest, uh, cleanest calendar I've ever used. You're never interrupted when you're working on things. Uh, the calendar's always in view. The month view is the only view. You work with your events on the sidebar. And uh, everything's very context sensitive. And probably the nicest thing about it, from my from my perspective, is that the entire thing is implemented in just a hundred lines of JavaScript, and everything else is RJS, HTML, CSS. So 
and the Rails helpers, of course. Well, thanks. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for doing all the uh, all these podcasts. It's yeah. really great to have it. Um, when you started doing them, I was like, oh, I'm glad someone's picked it up, but he'll probably only do it for three more weeks, and then he'll get bored. <laughs> so it's really awesome that, you know, almost, almost a year later, you're still um, at it. And I find myself, you know, constantly surprised when my RSS reader updates, and I see the cool person that you've decided to interview. So I really look forward to these every time you do them, and I really think it adds a lot of value to the community. So I thank you a lot for that. Well, great. I saw Scott Barron is here, and he started this whole mess, so I'll have to yeah. really say hello to him before the weekend's over. Chunky Baker. Chunky Baker. Chunky Baker. Chunky Baker. Chunky Baker. Chunky Baker.